Wired World is brought to you by Headscape.co.uk and in association with GetSignOff.com. In this week's show, we have Ian Lloyd discussing SitePoint's HTML reference section, and we look at creating screencasts. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul and Marcus. Hello, and welcome to the first ever BoeingWorld.com podcast. Boeing World. Hello, Hello and welcome to the 122nd episode of BioWorld.com, the podcast for all those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name's Paul Boag. And my name is Marcus Lillington. Uh, and here we are again. Yeah, if you want to say my name properly, you have to take a breath in between the two words. Marcus Lillington. Because you said you were Lillington. Mm. Well, it's not my fault you've got a stupid ass name. Yes, yeah, it's not my fault either. No, that's very true. I'll give you that. <laughs> so here we are. We're at, we're at Chris's house today. Yeah. Because we've been having a board, a headscape board meeting this morning, which was all very boring. That sounds so important, doesn't it? I know. A board meeting. We had a board meeting, and there were big fat cigars. And we sat around Chris's kitchen table. Yes, it wasn't. Uh, which is where we are now, actually. Yes. But unfortunately, Chris doesn't love our listeners. I won't come on the show. I'm going to get him down. You're going to get him yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. He'll really resent <laughs> you for it. You do know that. So, uh, Chris is, is camera shy, or microphone shy or some such combination of the above so there we go a mm-hmm. couple of uh, bits of housekeeping before we really get into today's show first is just to remind you about the deconstruct competition that we um, mm. ran last week that's got another week to run um basically that can win you a free ticket to go and see deconstruct one of the best web design um conferences here in the uk that's happening in september can't remember the exact date shame on me um the competition is very simple we've set a slightly higher bar than we normally do um that we basically asked you to send in either a little review um or a question or some kind of piece of audio to get entered into the competition now the reason we're doing this is because we're saying if you go to deconstruct on behalf of boag world by winning our ticket then what are you doing, Marcus? You're faffing around behind yeah, I'm, me. I'm bored. You're, you're bored. Um, yeah, so if you go along to the the, uh, the conference after winning our tickets, you have to give a review mm. um, of the conference, which you record via audio, you see. So you've kind of got an audition for it by sending it in audio questions. So send in a question, a review, anything you want. Just send it in um, in audio format, and we will include it on the show. You can send your entries to paul at boagworld.com. And here's a little hint. We haven't had a lot of entries so far. I won't say we've had none, but neither have we had two. <laughs> so so I, if it was you, you're doing pretty well at the moment. Yes. So if you send one in already, chances are you've won a ticket. But no, we've, we've got another week, so now's your chance. Make sure that you enter that competition. should be a good one. Deconstruct is an excellent, excellent uh, conference, so please uh, go to that. Okay, the other bit of housekeeping I wanted to mention is um, I recently came across a website called um, UserVoice.com, and it's an interesting idea. Basically, you can submit um, ideas about the show. So, if you think we ought to talk about a particular subject, 
or if you think maybe that um, Marcus shouldn't be allowed on the show anymore, or whatever the thing is, you can go along and you can post that idea to, to useavoice.com, and you go boagworld.uservoice.com, um, and then other people can come along and vote, yay or nay, to the various proposals. So I put a few in there already. So what was it? Boagworld at uh, dot uservoice dot com. Okay. So there's already one or two Get up there. Read of Paul. I've already put that about you. I've already put you up there. I've suggested that we have other presenters in other than you. <sighs> it's getting lots of votes as well. Yes, I'm sure it is. So go along to uh, go along to. Do I care? Shut up. Go along to Boagworld dot uservoice dot com and check that out. So I think that's about all for the intro. Other than I'm sat next to an ice cream recipe book. You were very excited about finding that. Look at that. that. That's why he, he was distracting me. Ben and ago. Jerry's homemade ice cream and dessert book. That's got Yum. to be fairly good. Does well, that, that mean they've got an ice cream maker here? We've got an ice cream maker. Have you? Yeah, it's lovely. I'm very impressed. Yes, so there we go. We're going to move on now to the new section of the show. We have four wonderful news stories for your delectation. delectation. I'm looking at the news. Yeah, oh, very, yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, n- not like you would have read it beforehand or been prepared in any kind of way. I looked at some of these. So anyway, the first story of the week um, is, well, really the fact that there's been a plethora of posts about typography. I can't eat biscuits, so I need a drink if I'm going to eat biscuits. It's okay. no good. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so there's been a plethora of posts about typography. Um, and, uh, for example, there's been an article about changes being made to typography in Firefox 3. I can see you're excited, Marcus, to hear that. In news. what way? Well, just the way that typography is rendered. Firefox has always been a bit pants in rendering its typography, so hopefully this will have helped a little bit. Okay. There's also um, a dedicated uh, a post dedicated to working with paragraphs and doing some cool stuff with laying out paragraphs. Don't laugh. If you're a typographer, you really care about this kind of stuff. It's important. Um, and there's also another post about um, the future development of CSS3 fonts. So lots of stuff going on about um, typography. And I kind of guess combined with the growing support for embeddable fonts, um, it appears that web typography is a rosy future. I think some good stuff is in store. I love it all. I was just being sarcastic. Typography. is very important. Mm, and hugely I- important. Really like, uh, really like typography. Lots and lots. So um, if you go to the show notes at biagworld.com forward slash podcast forward slash Slash one two two, he says. There's a plane dive yeah. bombs the house. Oh, of course, we're near all the army stuff, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Salisbury plane. Yeah. So if you go to that URL, then you can get to the links to those three posts. Um, and although the posts are interesting, I cannot, you know, I kind of came away feeling a little bit like that we don't really make full use of the the typography that we have on the web. Um, and to be honest, although this, all this new stuff is very cool and very exciting, I'm quite interested in what you can do right here and right now kind of thing. So I've learned a huge amount from reading from people like uh, Richard Rutter or John Hicks, who've got some great stuff to say on the subject. You know, for example, you know, how many of you guys listening to the show actually ever changed the default kerning on, on, um, on typefaces that you use or really get specific about the cascade of your fonts rather than just going, you know, Helvetica, Arial, Sans if you know actually you know being specific about what you want from a typography um or uh, you know who can really consider vertical alignment on a regular basis um or looking at you know creating some kind of relationship in the various sizing between your headings and your subheadings and all of that kind of stuff so 
I think there's a lot of people out there that have just given up on web typography because they feel it's really restricted. However, this will soon change, and I think before we kind of get into all that kind of stuff, we need to learn to use the basic tools currently available to us. It's, it's all about learning to walk before you run. So there we go. That's my first news story for the day. Next up. Our next news story follows on nicely from last week's feature on where we talked about accessibility quick fixes. Aaron Baker has written an accessibility checklist aimed at designers and developers who don't really know a lot about web accessibility. The idea is that simply by referring to this list during development, you should be able to avoid some of the major accessibility issues that come up. Now, Aaron is the first to admit um, that it's not the ideal solution. He also accepts that the checklist fails to cover everything. However, in my opinion, he's done a bloody good job at making the accessibility guidelines, well, I don't know, accessible even. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly understandable, let's put it like that. Um, what I like most, I think, about this is that there's a PDF version which you can print out, and it prints out all the kind of accessibility stuff you need to know on a single page of A4 that you can then pin on your wall, and it's kind of always there, which is... Thou shalt not... Yeah. Not fill in an alt tag. And the all Ten Commandments of Accessibility. Um, you know, and I think it's ideal for people starting <clears throat> off down the road of accessibility. Now, does this mean you can ignore WCAG? Hell No. <laughs> Um, absolutely not. However, um, it's certainly an easier starting point and less intimidating than the full WCAG guidelines. So, good one. Check that out. Which we're going to change soon anyway. Well, yes, but even so. It's still all good advice, good solid stuff. Right, yes. The next one's an interesting one. It kind of really grabbed my... No, it isn't. It is interesting. No, it isn't. Why are you saying I'm that? I'm just arguing with you. Yeah. Uh, which is what we've been doing in Headscape recently. Yeah, see, I'm just so subject. far ahead of you. I know. You, you can't keep up. No, you see? Yeah, so we've been having a little, well, not argument, a little disagreement. You and I agree, yeah. don't we? Yes. This, no, we agreed about something, was it this? Uh, it's only ever been at least, uh, only one thing at most we've ever agreed on. No, it was mood boards we mood agreed boards, on. Mood boards, there we go. So we've been talking a little bit about wireframes recently in Headscape and trying to work out where the job of the information architect ends and that of the designer begins. Kind of when it comes to wireframing in particular, that line is kind of blurred. Mm. A wireframe is often produced by an information architect, but can be strongly, def uh, but also can end up strongly defining things like layout and design. And this kind of reduces the designer to skinning a site, which, in my opinion, is a complete waste of a designer's skills. And you end up with very formulaic designs as well. Exactly. So I was therefore really excited to come across a series, of what will be, should I say, a series of posts on wireframing. There's only one at the moment, but he's going to write a series. And the author identifies exactly the, the kind of problem that we've been struggling with and talks about something called page description documents. Mm. Very interesting idea. And these documents differ from traditional wireframes because they don't endeavor to establish layout. Instead, this is left to the designer to do. The page description document focuses on identifying and prioritizing content, and then it's down to the designer to represent this on, on the site as he sees best. I'll be doing that in our next time I do them, which I think is next week. Yeah, because I, when I found this these posts, mm. I just emailed them around to everybody, and everybody went, yeah, that's, that's the answer to our problem. So I'm not, not a big fan of building wireframes, i.e. me doing it anyway, yeah. so it's an easy thing for me to let go of. Because you, you, you don't like having to do proper work. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Yeah. That applies to everything. Yeah. Mm. Uh, no, but particularly wireframes, because I always felt uncomfortable doing layout, because mm. that's what you're doing. Mm. 
So it's, I, I think this is absolutely the right way to go. You need to just, just have a, and, and it's more than just a, a sheet of, a sheet of prose with these are the points that you need to cover. It actually prioritizes them into, it's three columns, isn't it? And if yeah. it's in the left hand column, then it's really important. Yeah. In the middle column. And that's it. Yeah. So definitely check out um, that post, which you can get to from Biowag World. Um, there's also a related post that he mentions as well, um, and follow through and read that as well. So it's all good stuff. Okay, final news story today is a little bit of an unusual choice in the sense that it comes from our own forum. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to do this. Really, Am I, are we allowed to have a, a news story that's from our own site? Is that cheating? Who wrote it? Well, it wasn't written by me. Okay, so who, that, who wrote it? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you go and go and read the post. I don't know. I can't remember. But it's a good idea anyway. So, so what someone's done is they started a really good thread that caught my eye, um, which is called "What advice do you have for a new des- web designer?" Right? Uh, and it's a really good post. I mean, there's loads of good posts on the forum. Please check out forum. It's excellent. But this one in particular caught my eye, and it's not a long thread yet. Although I think it's getting longer every time I look at it. Um, and so it's fairly easy to follow and, and kind of read through it all. However, each post provides some excellent advice in the form of top five tips. So loads of different web designers um, that use the forum have gone along and they've put in their top five tips for a new web designer, what advice they would give. So tips include advice on business, techniques for improving your skills, areas that you should focus on, books and sites that you should read, what you should learn first, how to um, increase your profile, all that kind of stuff. So there's some really good things that you definitely want to check out there. Without exception, they're all gold dust. Love every one of them. Everybody's saying really good things. Um, And if you're new to design, then it's definitely worth giving them a read. Um, Equally, if you have been a web designer for a few years, then take a moment to post your own contributions to this so we end up with this really good list of, of useful advice I think probably also there's something for us all to learn from it, no matter how long you've been a web designer. So check that out. Should be excellent, um, excellent series of posts. Excellent, excellent. Excellent, excellent. Totally. Should we move on to the feature? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Feature of the day now then. So the feature that I wanted to look at today is creating screencasts. Um, I, I guess it kind of comes from the fact that video seems to become it, be becoming an intrinsic part of the web. And I'm not just talking about dumbass YouTube videos. Um, video <laughs> although, com- although they are although an intrinsic are. part yes, of the web. Yes, they anyway. are sad but true. Um, so video can be used, I don't know, show off your products or provide online demonstrations and presentations. But the big question is, is how do you go about creating a high quality screencast without spending a fortune? Because let's face it, we're all kind of still experimenting a bit in that area. And often certainly clients aren't willing to spend big budgets on that kind of thing. And, and to be frank, neither am I. Mm. So I love this picture. Fear. The, there's the one. Yeah. Fear with you in the corner oh very funny he's referring <laughs> he's referring to a picture from the blog post associated with this so that means nothing on an audio podcast now, I know it? honestly so inconsiderate so anyway um, I've been creating a lot of uh, screencasts lately and um and so I thought I'd talk a little bit about what I've been doing. So whether it's a kind of keynote presentation, which I've been doing occasionally, or demonstrating some web work, or get sign-off, for example, which is becoming our drinking game. Every time I say get sign-off, people mm-hmm. take a drink now. Um, so whatever the, 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 the reason for creating them, they're a great way of communicating information. So here's a few tips of what I've um, picked up along the way in no particular order. Get sign-off. 
You're just say, saying it randomly get now. Sign off. You're just trying to get people drunk. Okay. Um, number one is adding talking head video. So most screencasts are kind of PowerPoint-style presentations or video of somebody doing something on a desktop. Okay? Not particularly inspiring. Something that has a lot more impact uh, for engaging with your users if you can kind of talk directly to camera and, and they can actually see you talking to camera. This really grabs somebody's attention. So that's something I would really encourage you to do if possible, uh, and it's kind of the foundation for everything else really I want to talk about, is you know have your face on camera, speak directly to the camera, so you engage much more with people. Okay, um, so the second one then is to have a clean background with that in mind. So if you're recording yourself in front of a busy background, it looks unprofessional. He says, looking out of the like window this. behind us. We have a very unprofessional background. Um, Think carefully about what is behind you. I can't believe now that this is like this is just so ironic, perfect. isn't it? And we're getting heckled from the chat room for oh. having double standards. Um, so yes, do think carefully about what your background is, everybody. Um, uh, and if in <laughs> doubt, just record against. Uh, uh, <laughs> everybody's taking the mickey out of I us. Can't now. Believe I'm just, I'm just going to cover that up. There we go. When, when you. Um we discussed shall, which end of the table should we sit on, oh, because it might be a bit bright through there. And you'd written this. I know. For today's podcast. I'd forgotten. Unbelievable. Never mind. Move on. Do, do what I say, not as <laughs> I do. That's what you're supposed to say. So anyway, try, if in doubt, record against a plain wall. Um, also, remove... And this applies not just to, to recording yourself, but also um, if you're recording your desktop. So remove unnecessary icons from your desktop and make sure that you, your wallpaper is kind of simple and appropriate. Um, by appropriate, I mean, you know, no porn on your, <laughs> on your desktop. You get the kind of idea. Keep it simple. Next one. Um, if it's important, script it. So, if you're demonstrating an idea to a work colleague, then by all means, kind of record it spontaneously. However, if it's something more important, then write a script um, that you then read from. Um, it's surprisingly hard to record live video, um, and a script does help a lot to do that. So, another thing relating to this, which, which you might be interested in, is um, so there's an online teleprompter out there, and we, we put a link in the show notes, or you could just Google online teleprompter, mm. um, and it prevents your eyes from continually flicking down to read your script, right? So, uh, it's a bit hard to describe the setup that I have. Um, you, the best thing you do is, is go and look at the blog post related to this that will be available through the show notes. But basically, what I have, so if I'm recording myself talking to camera, and I'm also recording my desktop at the same time. So what I have is I have my laptop in front of me, which has got the screen on that I'm recording. Then ab above the laptop, I have a monitor, and the monitor has my script scrolling past in using one of these online teleprompters. And then right above the camera, as close, sorry, right above the monitor, as close to the top of the monitor as I can possibly get it, I have my video camera that's recording my face. Mm. So it looks like that I'm looking at directly at the camera when in actual fact I'm looking at the teleprompter that's just slightly below that. Now I have to say with really high quality video you can still see the fact that my eye line's just not perfect but to be honest by the time it's been compressed the hell out of and has gone on the internet it, it's yeah. good enough in most cases so um, definitely try and place the camera as close to your eye line as possible um, if you're reading so it doesn't look very obvious okay next one use decent equipment don't rely on laptop inbuilt mics and webcams I see this quite a lot and the yeah. quality will really suffer 
And just so you, you know how I do it, I plug um, my camcorder in via Firewire and record from that the, vi- the video. Although I have to say, I've just gone out and bought um, quite a posh um, webcam, a high-resolution webcam from Logitech, um, literally yesterday. And, and those of you that are watching the live feed, that's what you're seeing now. Um, but normally speaking, it's the camcorder I plug in. Audio I capture through um, Samsung um, mics that I have, which is a C01U mic, which apparently is very good for podcasting. But that's what it says on the box, so it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it must be. But it's a pretty good mic. It does certainly did the job, didn't it? Well, yeah. For, for a long time for us. Still, my one still works fine. We thought there was something wrong with it. But yeah, it's not. It's I just, worked out what it was. Yeah. Oh, that's a useful piece of advice, actually. If you if you happen to be a Mac user, slight tangent here, um, and you're plugging in um, your USB mic into your laptop, you will sometimes get interference when you hear this crackly thing coming through the mic. That's because one of the the USB uh, adapters is plugged into an internal hub, and the other one's not. You want the one that's not. So if you're getting crackliness, then just avoid using yeah. the, the that particular socket okay next one um, is kind of actual tools you use and I, by far the best screen recorder I've ever worked with and I have worked with quite a few um, is something called ScreenFlow, um, which is for the Mac. It's amazingly easy to set up and to use, it, and it can even—it's even capable of capturing full-screen video. So you can capture, you know, uh, 3D games like World of Warcraft, or you can capture a DVD playback, or whatever you want. Really, very, very good. Very impressed with it. If you're unfortunate enough to be a Windows user, then take a look at how do you pronounce this? Cam Camtasia. Camtasia. Which, Which I've you, used, yeah. and I found it really, really good. It is pretty good. So all this guff about it's considerably worse. No, I, I, I don't <laughs> think it is considerably worse. I do, in fact, I think it's, it's pretty much as good. But loads more money. But it's loads more money. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, ScreenFlow's like $70, something like that, and Camtasia's 299 If not more. No, I think I looked, it was 299 oh, right, okay. But it was really good. I think these, um, I was doing some CMS demos. Yeah. Works treat. Yeah, great, great tool. Um, there are the open source tools out there as well, um, and I'm sure people will post in the show notes about those. In fact, people already have posted in the show notes about various ones. Um, so there you go. Um, next up, just a quick note to say, you know, when you're recording this kind of thing, normal presentation techniques apply. Um, the tendency is that you start thinking, oh, you know, no, it's. Um, you know, you're so caught up in the kind of moving things around on the screen, all the rest of it, you can easily become monotone and, and yeah, right. you know, all the rest of it. So you've got to be enthusiastic. You've got to be clear spoken. You've got to be engaging. Avoid becoming monotone and, and try not to sound like you're reading. It's something from that, the script. Yeah. Think about how you are going to add the video to your website. Yes, exactly. Yeah? Like so, that. Yes. So that Can brings I do us some more. No, stop. Not all online video services are equal. So Marcus has How about moved... that? Very good. Marcus... Any more? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Marcus has moved on to the next point, but you probably didn't follow what he was saying because he was presenting so badly. Choose your player wisely. Shut up. So choose your player wisely is our next subject. That's more like sort of Marvin the paranoid android. 
wasn't it? Yeah, he said he was more depressed. He was, yeah. Down like the slides of a planet. It's interesting. You know, I was talking about that. I'm currently listening to the audio book of Matter by Ian oh, yeah. M. Banks. Brilliant book. Except that the droid in that sounds like Marvin the Paranoid <laughs> Android. And it just completely throws you. So there we go. Um, yes. So choose your player wisely. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm, I'm basically talking about how you embed your video into your website at the end of the day. Not all online services are created equal. Personally, I'm a great fan of Vimeo. Um, it places few limitations on file size or length. That said, um, all of the services compress the hell out of your video, basically. And so they're never great quality. Um, and if you've kind of uploaded your video and it's like, yeah, I'm not particularly sure about that, um, then I suggest um, hosting the file yourself. And there is something called JWFLV uh, Media Player, which does the trick and seems to take all kinds of different, um, uh, you know, different quality um, and different formats and that kind of stuff. Okay. So that's, that's really all I've learned so far from doing this. But basically, I'm really encouraging people to add additional tips um, and thoughts and ideas. So go along to baragord.com forward slash podcast forward slash one two two to have your say in a very interactive kind of way. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> okay, next, our interview with Ian Lloyd, who's talking a little bit about SitePoint's HTML reference library. Okay, so joining me today is Ian Lloyd. Hello, Ian. It's been a while. Hello, have we, Paul. Have we had you on Boag World before, or is it just .NET? Um, actually, never never real in real life person. No, I've, um, I did the video thing for you before. That's the, uh, it. Screen. Oh. Yeah, I knew there was something. I've heard my dulcet tones before. but Yes, but not on a live, real, happening interview type basis. Is this happening? This is happening right now. Wow. So there we go. That's <laughs> exciting. So the, the reason that I've got Ian on the show today is um, he has just undertaken and completed a mammoth project no no less in the form of an html reference guide um that is now available via um site point now we talked before on the show about the css reference guide but the the html one is a um, a, a new project that uh, is in beta at the moment why have you shoved a beta tag on it come on put your money where your mouth is commit to a real live version well, that's not really my shout, in fairness, but um, I think the reason they do it is because with all the will in the world um, and with all the, the technical editing that goes on and, and all the rest of it, um, invariably there's going to be things that, that crop up. Um, I, and I was, actually I was always surprised. under the impression you were infallible, Ian. Uh, oh, well, I'd like to keep that myth going, but it's obviously uh, completely untrue. <laughs> But no, I mean, I think it's, it's sensible. I mean, from, from what I can gather, they, um, they did this with the CSS reference, and uh, they tell me that they, they did get some good feedback as a result of, oh, cool. uh, of doing this. So. Um, and so, you know, it gives, gives them um, an opportunity to capture anything that has so far evaded the various, uh, you know, editing stages. That um, and, and there are little things that, you, you know, you, you, you can easily, easily miss. Yeah, so, um, so it makes sense. I mean, Put it in front of a whole bunch of pedants and you, you will find that uh, <laughs> things will be uh, revealed that you weren't aware of. Yes, almost certainly. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about how, how the project came about. You know, how did you end up working on this for, from site point, you know, and, and how did you get involved? Right. Well, it's um, it's actually quite a quite a long story, which I'll try and shorten down. But basically, um, I've got a bit of a history of SitePoint. Um, it goes back to probably 2001, 2002, something like that, um, where I was writing articles for them, um, and uh, I'd written a few, and they'd been scored quite highly. 
And um, in 2003, at the end of 2003, I took a year out of work. And oh, um, I uh, while yes, I was travelling around the world, mm. I made it my business to try and call in on people that I knew from, from the web. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in your part of the world. I pop in and say hello. Um, and that's what I did with the SitePoint guys. I was in Melbourne for a while, so I thought, well, pop in and say hello. So we did lunch. And uh, I was having a chat with um, one of the guys there who was saying, oh, have you ever thought about writing an accessibility book? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure if I've got a book in me. It seems like a lot of work. <laughs> but um, not long after that, I was asked, well, do you want to do some tech editing? Um, yeah, so, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And I actually did it while I was um, still traveling around Australia in the van. So um, so that was actually quite easy to do. Um, wasn't too bad at all. And then what happened is when I came back to the UK, I was asked, well, do you want to write a book? And this is the uh, the beginner's book that you've you've uh, reviewed in the past on the mm-hmm. show. Um, so it's kind of been an escalation from there, really. So that was that that book, and then I did a couple of other bits and pieces for A-Press. And then uh, not so long ago, I got the call back from SitePoint to say, well, do you want to do this HTML reference? And at the time, I thought, I don't know, I'm not sure. Does the world need another HTML reference? <laughs> um, but I kind of thought that when I did the first book, and that, that's done, that done pretty well and had some really good feedback. So I thought, well, you know, let's, let's think about this. Maybe, maybe it's worth doing. And um, in my mind, I convinced myself that this wouldn't be a difficult thing to write. <laughs> because, well, you see, you see, you think you know HTML. You think you know it because you use it every day. And I thought, well, like, you know, how difficult can it be compared to, say, the JavaScript um, reference that they were writing there's a million and one ways that you can approach something with javascript where with whereas with html you think there's a finite number of um elements or tags whichever you prefer to use um that you can use on in on, on any given scenario so you think it's it's pretty straightforward isn't it um that's what i thought anyway and and i was also thinking in terms of browser compatibility the bigger problems come from the css that you put over the top that's where you get all the quirks mm. happening so i thought to my mind, yeah, this is actually not going to be too difficult a job. But I think I underestimated it. <laughs> <laughs> is that not always the way when it comes to any kind of project like this that, you know, it's always ends up being loads bigger than, than you thought, you know, thought I think it was I, going to be? I think it actually surprised me how much more work there was involved. I mean, I don't know if you did that little test a little while ago. It was one of those things that everyone was sending around. Oh, the, uh, the how many HTML elements can you can you do in some, like two minutes or yeah. something? Yeah. And everyone was having a go at it. And you think you think you know quite a lot, and then you realise there's so many more that you didn't know. Mm. And there were so many that I I sort of vaguely remember, but probably would never use. And that was the funny thing was writing about these elements. I think, well, that's that one done. Never going to use it. Probably no one is ever going to read it either. But <laughs> it's got to be covered. So I mean, with so, the with the CSS reference book that uh, or reference guide that they produce, they've now turned it into a book. Are they intending to do the same with this? Is that the plan? Absolutely, and that was the other strange thing. I thought, well, this this is a kind of a, a, a strange business model. They're going to put it online for free, but they're also going to do, do a book. Would people actually buy a book? Um, but I'm sure they don't do, do these things without doing the research first. I'm pretty sure that um, they've they've got a good idea what they're doing with this. Hmm. Um, so. I never sort of went into it thinking, oh, I'm going to make millions out of this because, you know, it's, it's never going to happen. I mean, anyone who's written a book, aha, yourself included. <laughs> yeah. I, mine has, so I'm, I'm still writing, which means that I'm in that, that, uh, that naive state of thinking, oh, yeah, it's going to sell hundreds of thousands of copies and millions of copies and I'm going to be rich. So don't shatter it. Sorry, Paul. 
Just, just say how how much money I'm going to. Oh yes, yeah, well, you're, yeah, you're going to be rolling on on a bed of money. It's just you're, you're not going to know what to do with the stuff. Of oh, wonderful, great! I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, it's gonna it's gonna turn into a book before too long. Ah, yes. So the question then, I mean, you you mentioned that there were some things in there that you thought, well, why on earth, you know, I've written this, but I'm never going to use it and probably no one else's as well. I noticed that there are a couple of sections in there dedicated to kind of depreciated HTML tags and, and stuff that people actually shouldn't use. That's yeah. a bit of an unusual decision, isn't it, to put in stuff that people actually shouldn't be using. Why 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 take that route? Okay. All right. Well, the thing is, because it's a reference, you have to include everything. So, um, so everything that is in the in the W three C approved um, recommendation or you know, the documentation, everything that's in there is included, even if it's as much use as a chocolate teapot. It's still got to go in there, um, and that also includes the deprecated tags. Um, but there's also things that are included, such as uh, like Blink or BG Sound or Marquee. Right. Um, that were never actually defined in any standard, but because they have almost universal support, not all of them have the same level of support, but basically there's a lot of elements out there that were never defined in the standard, but are well supported, that the decision is that this should go in there. We can't deny its existence. <laughs> For all, you know, it's, it may not be necessary, it may not be something that anyone would want to use, but as it's a reference, but we should include it. Um, there were some that we, we, we didn't include, so um, I can't even remember off the top of my head what they would be, but um, things that were perhaps, say, Netscape, defined in Netscape 4 um, and are just not, no, not supported in anything, and given that Netscape 4 is, is dead and gone a long time ago, um, there were some things that didn't make it in. Um, but the reason for having a separate index that said, here are some elements that you shouldn't use or you should avoid, or these are deprecated ones, was really a case of saying, well... We've got this entire index of all these things, um, and I don't want anyone to think that because it's in the index that it's necessarily approved. So I just wanted to kind of pull them out and say, look, you know, it's, it's in the reference, but actually we don't really want you to use those. I mean, which are the worst culprits? Which are the ones that you think that people are using a, a lot that they really, really shouldn't be? Your chance now to lecture people and, and preach at them about their bad HTML. Well... Strangely enough, I mean, I don't actually see an awful lot of um, a lot of them used now. I mean, I think that probably the most common is, is people using uh, bold and italic, or the B and the I tags, um, when really they, sh- they probably should be using strong and M. But that, then again, um, the B and I tags actually do have their place. Um, but you know, they're usually they're usually misused. Um, thankfully, the kind of things that I don't wouldn't want people to use don't tend to see very often now anyway, like the blink or marquee. Um, and BG Sound, which was, uh, you know, always a real pet hate of mine. You'd visit a site and then suddenly you'd get some, I don't know, Indonesian gamelan music blaring through that was set in a BG Sound. And I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, it's good that this is gone. But then, I mean, go to any spa- any page on MySpace and, and, okay, they've replaced it with something that's that's got sound in Flash so as soon as you hit the page. So, uh, yeah, that may have gone, but they've replaced it with something equally annoying. Now, there's a little question there. So you say that... that um bold and italic have got their place how is it supposed to be used to educate me as to the proper use of those two um well it's really if if what you're actually marking up is uh something that's you're trying to um describe something in that's typographical so in other words you're putting the b the b tag around something because it is something you're describing as bold um 
So it's that kind of context. Um, I mean, I use in the examples uh, on, on, on the references, it's actually really sort of almost like I'm, I'm describing like a sign or something like that. So yeah. there, are, there are reasons when you use it. But generally speaking, what people are using it for is when they actually want to use emphasis or strong emphasis. So yeah. uh, in most cases, what I would end up using would be strong and M because that's normally what I'm, I'm trying to do is, hmm. is emphasize. Okay. But, well, uh, have, let's not have the place. What, um, what other kind of bad practice have you been seeing? I mean, you know, what are the things that, that not just with specific tags, but general bad practice that you, you, um, are your pet peeves when it comes to HTML? You know, what things are people doing a lot that just piss you off? Oh, um, well, like I said earlier, I think I'm, strangely enough, because of the kind of sites that I normally look at, I don't actually stumble across too many, uh, coding sins because that's kind of the, the circles I'm in, I suppose. Um, the, the funniest thing is when you, when you see your own markup from years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've just had to do this with something at work where, um, I've taken on, um, a reworking of something that was written 10 years ago and I'm like, oh my god, this is awful. And it had been duplicated five times instead of one file with, say, um, like the logic inside that one yeah. file. So I had five, it was like, Hang on, I've got to do this five times over. <laughs> uh, but it was it was nice to go back and see something that was that was old and table layout and all the rest of it, and and kind of give it a good clean up in the process. Um, so yeah, it's funny when you look at your own markup and go, oh, God, I've moved on. <laughs> yeah, that's. A- I mean, even even when you know you just look at the the what you learn as um, once from when you started doing standards to say when you're doing it now, it's like I look back at the early standards work I I did, and it you know it's all div tastic. There's just divs everywhere. Oh, yeah. um, but so, no meaning to the, to the document as such. Yeah, no no meaning whatsoever. But you know. It used CSS, so it must be all right, <laughs> which obviously doesn't quite work, does it, really, in reality? Oh, yeah. But there you go. Um, the, the, I guess the, the thing that really uh, I see a lot is um, it's just general sloppiness, you know, people not closing tags when they've um, said that they're using, say, XHTML um, hmm. or unsymmetrical opening and closing, those kind of things. Uh, and probably the worst thing is, is people missing um, alt attributes for, um, for images, which uh, is such an easy thing to, to put right, but uh, see, uh, I see it so often. Mm. I guess probably the worst offence, though, are people f- uh, are from the kind of people who probably have never looked at a reference and may never look at a reference. So I don't know that this would actually solve the problems. And by that, what I mean is people that would never actually get their hands dirty with the code. They're, they'll be using things like front page and Word and, you know, save, save as HTML and Word. Mm. Um, and uh, you just want to kind of beat them over head, the head with, uh, with a large reference book. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I don't know if those kind of people are beyond hope. But, <laughs> but maybe, maybe we were there at one point. Who knows? Maybe, maybe they're not beyond uh, saving. Um, funnily enough, that. I was saying about the front page thing. Um, it's quite shocking. I was um, looking at um, the uh, the program for a local college evening course the other day, and, and just out of curiosity, I flicked through to the computing section and uh, looked to see if they were doing any web courses. And yay, they were. How to build a website. And it was a seven-week course, how to build a, web pa- a website using front page. And I was oh, like, no. head slap, what are they doing? Oh, so, it's amazing that people are still doing that. Shocking. So, yeah, it's, it's not going to go away in the short term still. When you were kind of going through this this reference, putting it together, was there was there a tag um, that you came across that kind of you thought, oh, why don't why don't I use that more? You know, that's an underused tag. I mean, for example, I'm, I'm, I, I've just suddenly started using definition lists more. You t- uh, oh. 
You've taken the words right out of my mouth. That was exactly what I was going to say. Oh, well, there you go, then. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exactly one of those things. That actually, I mean, I don't tend to use it an awful lot myself, but um, but there are certainly uses for it. Uh, but it, when we did this, this, this the quiz thing that we were talking about earlier, I did this with some people at work, and... Um, so few of them had actually heard of definition list. It was like, what is this markup of which you speak? Yeah. What is DL? What is DDGT? You know, they had they had never heard of it, and it sort of it surprises me. But I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't be a surprise because we see list items used absolutely everywhere. But I don't know. It seems to be, be a bit of a mystery for people. So that would be that would be one that people could use more often, and uh, I'd certainly like to see people use it more often. Mm. I've found it really useful. It's surprising how many of the things, um, you know, for example, you know, a news story, we have a title and then you have the description underneath of the news story. And there's, there's loads of examples like that where there are these kind of paired matchings that, that just suit the definition list so well. And, yeah, it's, it's a cool tag if an HTML tag is capable of being cool, which is probably doubtful. <laughs> and it, there are some others as well which... Um, I certainly would like to see people use more often, and they're not ones that I don't use. I use them all the time. But things like um, the sort of accessibility-specific type ones, like uh, for forms like label, field sets, and mm. legend, I'd like to see those used more often. Mm. Um, but um, you know, to some people, again, this is something they, they they still don't get. And of course, just general, um, just using the proper semantic markup, as, you, mm. as we've already covered with uh, with um, sites that are divtastic, you know, stick a couple of headings in there, some um, unordered lists, and already you start to give your document more structure. Mm. Um, so talking of uh, semantics and that kind of stuff, I noticed you had a whole section dedicated to microformats, and, and microformats aren't really part of the kind of W3 specification. So why did you decide to include them? Oh, because it's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really cool stuff, Paul. Um, no, the... the the reason really was because um, in, in the process of drawing up the table of contents, it was it, kind of looking at all the elements that we needed to cover. Um, it, it became clear that there are certain things that HTML can't do, and obviously this is not a revelation, otherwise microformats wouldn't have come about anyway. Um, but it felt right to put it in because essentially, although microformats are still developing, they do go through a rigid uh, process for being, you know, documented, discussed, ratified, and all that kind of thing. So while it isn't W3C um, recommendation, it feels like it's it's controlled. Um, and also that it doesn't really do any harm because you can you can add this in over the top of HTML. You're still using plain old HTML, but adding adding that extra richness in um, without necessarily doing any, any any harm. So it felt like it was something that was safe to put in. I guess the only problem with, with putting something like this in, um, for, for, at least for the printed version of, of, of the book, um, is that as they're developing, um, it's, it, can be get, it can get out of date, hmm. at least with the online version as, as, uh, as things get added and, and, and they're kind of adopted, then that could easily be added in. So it, fe- it felt like... Um, useful thing to do mm, um, yeah and it's good to give you know a microformats higher profile because i think there's still a lot of people that are unaware of them so that's good i was gonna say it's by no means a complete microformats reference it really is still um a uh, fairly sort of entry level um introduction i mean there are books out there specifically for uh, for microformats um which if you know so if someone really wants to learn more then they would they would be better to pick up a book or go to microformats.org to learn more mm. um but hopefully it would 
give some exposure to it from uh, to people that perhaps wouldn't otherwise. And the other good thing about it is because because the um, the reference on site point is very very searchable. Um, hopefully, by the time um, Google's indexed it, you will find people that perhaps stumble across this that they wouldn't have done um, otherwise. And and just from doing a search within the site itself. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a chance that people might learn about microformats when they might not otherwise have done. Mm. But yeah. we'll see. Okay, so uh, you know, bearing in mind that a lot of people that are listening to this um, podcast are, are web designers, and you know, they're sitting there going, "Well, I kind of know HTML." Like like you were saying at the beginning, it's you know, you you have this perception, it's something you know back to front. So, just to kind of finish up with, is there a kind of you know, one area that you really want to challenge people over and or one piece of good practice you'd like to kind of push people on where, you know, where perhaps they're not kind of as hot as they should be? Hmm, that's a tricky one. I mean, I'm obviously aware that the audience of the podcast, they, they, they know a fair amount already. Um, I mean, I guess you do have some people that are relative beginners. So I'm not entirely sure the advice is appropriate for the audience, but the the kind of advice that I would always give is that, um, and, and I say maybe I'm just teaching people to suck eggs here, but it's really I think it's it's so much more useful if you can actually learn from the ground up, mm. um, you know, learn learn the code uh, using the really really simple tools. So, for example, um, I mean I use Dreamweaver a lot, an awful lot, um, but that's because I know how Dreamweaver is going to handle the, the markup. I know if there are any little foibles, what it's going to do. So it's very quick for me to use that um, without causing any, any real damage, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for a beginner. Mm. I'd say, you know, lear- learn the basics, you know, walk before you before you run. Um, obviously, things that I mentioned before, Word and Front Page, to never, ever dream of using anything like that because they just do an awful shocking job of it. Um, but in in essence, I mean, HTML is not massively difficult to get to grips with. What I what I tend to find is a problem. It's it's what you then layer over the top of it. It's, it's the the browser incompatibilities with with CSS, mm. and obviously with JavaScript. I mean, it's it can be as simple or as complex as as you like. So um, HTML is not massively difficult to learn, but it's 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 still useful to learn it from the ground up and not just let a tool do it for you. I think mm. that would that would be my advice. Yeah. I mean, it's, on one hand, it's not difficult to learn, but on another hand, I think it's quite difficult to master, if that makes sense. You know, it takes you quite a long time to... to oh, yeah, you're talking about med- the pedant... You're talking about the sort of the pedantic kind of, uh, you know, when you, when you start to argue about the, the fine details about which element is appropriate for this usage. And you, can, yeah. you can get into uh, some debates over some things, yeah. <laughs> I like the way that you refer to it as pedantic. Do you think that you know we we've gone a little a bit overboard as far as our obsession with HTML and and marking up everything correctly? I don't know. I think it's I think it's a good thing that that um, people discuss and and try and squeeze the most out of it. But uh, um, but there are there are some grey areas, and, and and you do sometimes think that you know it's, it it is yeah, a bit nice. limited. Hence <laughs> things like microformats adding the uh, the extra richness on top of it. Mm. Um, but I don't know. It's, it, it tends. It, it's usually uh, good-natured. Put it that way. Oh, okay. I thought I was going to get you to do, say something really controversial that was going to get you flamed, but I didn't manage to kind of quite. Oh, like HTML it. sucks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just use front page. <laughs> It'll all be fine, man. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> 
Okay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and uh, where can people check this out if they, they want to see this reference and try it out for themselves? Okay, well, the, uh, the HTML reference is at reference.sitepoint.com slash HTML. Cool. And uh, if you want to look at the CSS reference, replace the slash HTML with slash CSS. Yep. And uh, I understand that the, the JavaScript reference that is being written by um, James Edwards, a.k.a. Brother Cake, that is okay. still ongoing. So at some point, there will be a, a third part to this, um, this reference. So cool. we'll have all, all three uh, layers. And I have to say, I've been extremely impressed with what I've seen so far. I've, I've actually been using the HTML reference, believe it or not. In fact, I used it yesterday just to, to check That's something. Sick. So um, I, can, I can highly recommend it. Much better than that crappy old uh, W3 three school. So you can uh, <laughs> ignore that from now on and use SitePoint instead. Okay, thanks very much, Ian. That was really good. And uh, I will talk to you again soon. Okay, Ian. thank you very much. Well, goodbye. Bye. Okay, now we're going to move on to listeners' feedback. Are we, Marcus? Are we, we really? Are. Did you like that? That was, my, that was my children's presenter voice. Very good. Please uh, carry on. JW writes, I have been on the buying side of both fixed and hourly projects with lacklustre results lately. The process mm. can be quite frustrating for, for me with some of the following bubbling to the top. In a, inaccurate estimates both in cost and time. A lack of commitment to carry out all agreed items within a scope when it takes longer to accomplish than originally planned. The need to ask for more money when the scope doesn't change. Which leaves me asking, how much is the developer's word worth? (laughs) (laughs) How much is the developer's word worth? It's not just developers. No, it's designers, freelancers, agencies. He's talking about all of them, basically, isn't he? Right. I'm going to talk. Go on, then. Um, Two things here. One is... You shouldn't, as a, um, as somebody who's buying service like this, you shouldn't have to pay more if the scope doesn't change. Agreed. It's kind of tough on the agency in the first place. However, now this is presuming we're talking about fixed price projects here. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's T and M. That's different. Well, yeah. then that wouldn't happen, would it? Because the scope changes continually. That's why you have T and M. But what you you may have been in a position where you might have bullied the agency into starting a project overly quickly if they'd been saying hang on a minute hang on a minute at the start we need to scope this out properly and then you say no 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 this is the brief this is the brief get on with it then they've got a leg to stand on with saying we did say yeah but generally speaking nah you you should never pay, pay any more if the scope doesn't change okay is my, in my view yes i don't disagree with that but i i have to say it's interesting because writing this book at the minute, which is written towards um, clients, you know, it's giving advice yeah. to clients rather than website owners. Um, <clears throat> I've kind of, I, I've pretty much said that you should avoid time and materials unless you've already got an established working relationship with a client. Yeah, and the reason, I'm not sure why you've said that, but I would say the reason for for doing that is it forces you to scope it out properly in the first place. Yeah. Uh, And that's the reason, it's kind of the the onus is within the agency to scope the job properly, talk to the client, and if if they don't do that and then they end up thinking, oh, hang on a minute, this is costing us loads more than we thought it would, that's their problem Mm. in my view, even though that we are... We're an agency, not a, not a not a client. I mean, I think the danger that that you sometimes get into, especially with projects where there are tight deadlines, hmm. is that 
you there is this kind of temptation to skip past the whole kind of clearly defining the scope of the project and you know we need to get on with it we need to start work um and i think that inevitably is going to cause problems later uh, you know even if you've got the nicest people on both sides of the fence you know a really yeah. nice client a really nice there's going to be misunderstandings and miscommunications unless you clearly define things up front um i you know i have to say as well that that um you know there are there are nasty agencies out there they do exist there are people that take the mick yeah um you I, know this is not the first time i've heard of this i mean oh, it's, that's why i said it's not just developers i mean Design agencies will, or, you know, what 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 the idea is that you get pulled in as a client with mm. promises of this and promises of that. Oh, well, no, we didn't mean that. Yeah, the the price you got was for just for this bit. Yeah, and it does happen a lot. So uh, this goes back to what I used to harp on about in these contracts and, and agree a proper contract. I'm doing it from the from the client's side now, mm. but it will it was from back in those days we were looking at it from the agency point of view, but it, it applies to both. Both sides, if you've got uh, an agreed, kind of quite heavily nailed down spec at the start, there's no reason why you can't change it, but you have to kind of officially do it, and yeah. it'll be priced, and the timescale will adjust. Um, but, you know, don't just go in going, yeah, it'll be right, because it very rarely is. I mean, I've suggested a couple of approaches in the book that to kind of mitigate the problem. The first is to, to speak to the clients of the agency or designer or developer you're working with try and talk to them directly yeah. so you can get an idea of whether it's happened before and i've even gone as far as suggesting well you know maybe contact those people directly rather than through the agency so you can pick who you talk to yeah in preference to be given the kind of the the clients that they approve the tame clients that are going to say nice things mm. so that's one thing that i've suggested the other thing that i've talked about is actually taking um you know, if it's a reasonable size project, break it, you know, break it down a little bit and have an initial consultancy mini project up front mm. um, so that you can try out working with the de- uh, designer or the developer or whoever and see, you know, how good they're going to be before you kind of commit to a larger scale and more complex project. So I guess in answer to the original question, yeah, I'm sad to say that you can't trust the developer's word and you need to take safeguards and protect yourself. And, you know, no matter how good the vast majority of people are, there's always going to be kind of the bad apples that screw it up for everybody else. So yep. you have to protect yourself. Next question. Hi, Paul and Marcus. My name is Richard Simpson. I'm a freelance web designer and programmer from Spalding in Lincolnshire. I really love the podcast and the website and find it a useful resource for information on usability, accessibility, design, and bad jokes. My question for you is, obviously as a web designer, we develop a web solution for our customers and provide support, maintenance, etc. But what, in your experience, is the life cycle of the websites we develop? Do you see it being a short-term year, year and a half, or is it a longer-term two, three years? Obviously, we strive to do our best for the customer and hope they provide a return custom or recommenders to other businesses, for example. But what sort of time period is it usual to be contacted for a potential redesign? Obviously, it perhaps varies with the nature and purpose of the business, but I was just interested to hear what you thought and your viewpoint on it. Thanks a lot. You do a really good job, and uh, keep up the good work. So basically, how long does a website last before it needs rebuilding? Um, I have 15, to s- 20 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Don't change the content either. That no, just fine. leave it. Just leave it to stagnate. Right. People okay. will keep using it and be fine. So, um, I've, uh, I've basically, I want to challenge two assumptions in this question, right? First, Richard says, um, 
you know, it's making the assumption that the periodically websites need redesigning, right? And secondly, he suggests that um, the client has to come back to you. In my opinion, neither of these are ideal scenarios. So I've written before on Boag World, um, and I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes, about how ideally websites should evolve over time rather, rather than going through continuous cycles of redesign. I do, however, accept that the decision lies with the client and not with yourself, so you don't always get to control whether or not they, they, they uh, redesign or evolve their site. Nevertheless, I would encourage you as the website, website designer to kind of work hard at persuading a client of the benefits of the approach of kind of evolving a site rather than redesigning it. Is Chris not coming? He's refusing point blank. Oh, <laughs> we were trying to persuade Chris to come on the show. This is house. He's a meanie. He's busy. So I, I'm, what I was just doing, Marcus, is I was challenging the presum, uh, presum, presumption yes. that um, sites should uh, be right, redesigned and that actually an ideal scenario is that they evolve over time so you don't go through spad, spad, sporadic redesigns. Sporadic, even. Yes, I'm really struggling today, aren't I? Um, and Because uh, I believe that this serves both the best interests of the web designer and also that of the client. Throwing out all previous work on a site every couple of years seems lunacy and totally unnecessary, where it should you know, build and evolve over time. Yeah. And you've got to say the sites that we have most success with at Headscape are, are people like Wiltshire Farm Foods um, that, that actually grasp that concept and we're working with regularly. Yep. Um, I often have to say that um, you're doing your client a disservice by simply waiting for them to contact you. I think you need to be more proactive than that. And it's your role as a website designer to continually suggest ideas about how they should be improving their site based on emerging technologies and innovations and that kind of thing. So, for example, we offer our clients the opportunity to re make, re meet regularly with us free of charge to discuss their sites and where they would like to go next. This encourages them to think in terms of evolving their site rather than the redesign, which we've already mentioned. It also ensures that the site does not stagnate or die um, for lack of attention, basically. Mm. Now, uh, you know... Let's be honest, it's not completely altruistic, this approach. Um, by speaking to our clients regularly, we ensure that they don't forget us and increase the likelihood of repeat business. Mm. And does this approach always work? Well, no. So, you know, some clients don't want us to continually pester them, and I can understand that. And some simply can't afford to move their site forward. In this case, what we, t we take a more passive role. However, we still do encourage them to read you know, the blog and to keep in touch and maybe listen to the podcast and that kind of thing. However, I, you know, I think these should be the exception, not the rule, that you should be proactively approaching your clients. So in answer to the question, um, I guess I would argue that the life cycle of a website should ideally be infinite mm -hmm. um, and that it should evolve and change over time. Um, but that can only happen when you have a partnership and a real relationship with your clients rather than them just buying a service from you. So that would be the aim. So there we go. I just want to answer a question that someone's asked. Uh, they're about to take on some charity work. How do I go about it? Make sure you don't give your services away for free. If you want to give to the charity out of your own pocket, fine, but they're just another client the same as any other. Yeah. In my I mean, view. the way that we've, we've done ch uh, charity work before, and the vast majority of the time, you know, we just charge them the full price because we do so much of that kind of work. However, I do remember one we worked with, um, CAFOD, wasn't it? I think it was CAFOD, yeah. where we did the work, charged them a normal, and then at the end we decided to make a donation. 
yeah. okay um but that was a completely separate thing of you know the kind of a separate deal i guess yeah. is the is the key okay so um Let's do the joke then, Marcus. Have you got a witty and intelligent joke to finish up on? I guess we're not witty. Well, you may, um, witty and intelligent sounds like it's quite sort of tasteful, but it's not. Um, I can't remember who sent me this. Sorry, but uh, made me laugh. Here we go. Last week was my birthday, and I didn't feel very well waking up that morning. I went downstairs for breakfast, hoping my wife would be pleasant and say happy birthday and possibly have a present for me. As it turned out, she barely said good morning, let alone happy birthday. Oh. I thought, well, that's marriage for you, but the kids will remember. My kids ate breakfast and didn't say a word. So when I left for the office, I was feeling pretty low and somewhat despondent. As I walked into my office, my secretary, Jane, said, Good morning, boss. Happy birthday. It felt a little better than than that at least someone had remembered. I worked until one o'clock and then Jane knocked on my door and said, You know, it's such a beautiful day outside and it's your birthday. Let's go out to lunch. Just you and me. I said, thanks, Jane, that's the greatest thing I've heard all day, let's go. We went to lunch. We didn't go where we normally would go. We dined instead at a little place with a private table. We had two martinis each, and I enjoyed the meal tremendously. This doesn't sound like it's going in a good direction. <laughs> On the way back to the office, Jane said, you know, it's such a beautiful day. What? We don't need to go back to the office, do we? I responded, I, uh, I guess not. What do you have in mind? She said, let's go to my apartment. Ooh. After arriving at her apartment, Jane turned to me and said, Boss, if you don't mind, I'm going to step into the bedroom for a moment. I'll be right back. OK, I nervously, re- I nervously replied. She went into the bedroom, and after a couple of minutes, she came out carrying a huge birthday cake, followed by my wife, kids, and a dozen of my friends and co-workers, all singing happy birthday. Whee. And I just sat there on the couch, naked. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think that's disgraceful. <laughs> I think it's a poor reflection on him as an individual, a married man behaving like that, and he deserved everything he got. Well, there you go. A moral story from today's joke, and we need to all take that on board. Thank you very much for listening. This isn't Risington <laughs> Podcast, where that kind of behaviour is encouraged. We disprove. We're very moralistic here. Okay, so that about wraps up today's show. Thank you very much for listening. Um, check out the show notes at boagworld.com forward slash podcast forward slash one do do and also the forum at boagworld.com forward slash forum. And don't forget to send in your deconstruct entries to paul at boagworld.com. Can't wait to talk to you again next week. Join us for the live chat. Presuming we do it, which I see no reason why we won't. Yep, talk to you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Hello, world of Boaz. It's like being on David Letterman.
To contribute to the show, visit boagmore.com forward slash contact. Call 020 8133 or join our forum at boagmore.com forward slash forum.